You're listening to the Get Fucking Real Show. Strap in as your host, Lisa Cherney, takes you on a ride full of GFR moments. From powerful messages to exclusive interviews to untold stories of super shitty moments before big successes. And even real-life confessions. Lisa's been mentoring millionaire entrepreneurs for over 20 years, coaching top coaches and tapping her mighty woo-woo side to mentor the best of the best spiritual peeps. It's time to bring on the straight talk from successful, soulful entrepreneurs, inspiring you to live without regrets, to create your legacy, and be unapologetically you. And now, it's time to GFR. Life is too short to be a slave to your own dream Cause I'm working too hard And I want to feel so alive I jump out of bed because I love my life Living on my terms, I know that I will thrive Being myself, clarity will arrive So I'll stand out and be J-U-I-C-Y Hello, hello. Welcome to the crazy ride that is the Get Fucking Real show. I just am so excited to be telling you yet another story, sharing yet another amazing entrepreneur that has been through it and has come out the other side multiple times to live her purpose and her passion. And her name is Afreen Khan. And she is such a delight. I did not know her that well. After I do these interviews, people, oh my gosh, I just, I feel like I have a new friend. We spent a couple hours together, even though the show was only, you know, an hour long. And it's just, I create that space so that we can really connect. And it's just, it's just so delightful. I swear it's just for me, you know, just joking. I know that these stories are for me always seems to be the divine right time that I interview the person. And then I know they are for you times 10. And Afreen is no exception to this rule. She, oh, there's so much to share about her. She had 750 people at her wedding. <laughs> that is a fun fact. She is South Asian born. She was not born in Bangladesh, but her parents were born are from Bangladesh and she was born in America, um, live, lived on Long Island her childhood. Another fun fact, knew her husband from the time she was a young girl, and they are business partners. So I guess they're not going to get sick of each other. <laughs> she is the visionary behind Red Elephant, which is an event production company And she has had clients like Deepak Chopra and Richard Bronson. And she is passionate about helping a particular type of entrepreneur use events to really bring their forward thinking and trailblazing efforts into the world. And as you may have guessed, her business went through some big transformation in the last couple of years. Thank you, COVID. And she is coming out the other side and talks about really what's what's emerging for Red Elephant and for her and her husband. And she talks about growing up as a brown skinned girl, you know, in Long Island and, you know, the impact that that had on her and how it made her feel invisible. And she had a significant GFR wormhole type turning point 
back in 2012 when Hurricane Sandy hit the eastern seaboard. And I'm going to let her share about that, how it impacted her business and her life. It's so inspiring. Really, it's, it's you know, <laughs> honestly, whenever I'm feeling uh, down or frustrated or uninspired, I just need to listen to my own darn show. And uh, these stories really keep me going. And I, I hope, hope, hope and pray that they do that for you, too. So please subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of these amazing stories because you are going to hear the one that you need in the divine right time. I truly believe that. So without further ado, I can't wait for you to meet Miss Afreen Khan. Afreen, welcome to the GFR show. Hi, Lisa. So great to be here. I am so excited because we don't know each other that well. So I'm just excited to hang out with a new friend. And I, I don't get to do that a lot on the show. I often know the people that I'm going to interview. That's great. I feel like I'm sitting in your office on a comfy seat and let's dive in. All right. Awesome. Well, I told everybody in the in the opening that we've like known each other for a long time and and then even had like real like just once removed kind of connections. And it took our most recent mutual client, Joan Ranquette, who's also a former GFR show guest, to like really like we were on a meeting together and I was like, you need to be on my podcast. I don't know why, but I know you need to be on my podcast. So I'm so excited the universe finally made it like a no brainer for us. Absolutely. And this podcast, I think, brought us closer because there was a mutual friend who we lost last year. And I listened to your podcast interviewing him several months prior to his passing. And it was so unexpected, the loss. And late at night, I got an email from you I'm on your list and clicked on it. And it was so healing to hear his story and to feel connected to him and the way you guided him in a way where he could really let his hair down and share some of those moments really made a difference for me in processing that time. So I thank you for your stand to bring more stories so that people can use this uh, for healing and inspiration and motivation. Thanks for reminding me about that. You know, and then the, the guest is Alan Davidson and I think his title starts, ends with fabulous gay mystic from, I can't remember something to fabulous gay mystic. And that was such a, such a amazing time. And I don't know if I told you this, that he's another sort of mutual friend. We've always had like, you know, one removed Mm -hmm. and I, Two months before I interviewed him, it was like like a very distinct hit, like it's time to have Alan Davidson on the show. Mm-hmm. And so I just look look back at the timing of that those events and having him on the show and then his passing. And I'm so grateful that I had that chance to help him tell his story. And it's been, I've gotten a lot of feedback from friends and family and stuff that saying that they didn't even know, you know, part of his story. And so I'm so grateful that I got that opportunity. Hey, Alan, we're talking about you. (laughs) Darling. He's saying darlings. He's totally saying darlings. Yes, Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Snap. (laughs) Yeah, it was fabulous game mystic snap, (laughs) dot, 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 snap. (laughs) Like you you should know him. You had to know that that's, that was his part that he had to add to the title. (laughs) Okay, so I would like to start with 
sort of like the young Afreen and growing up in Queens and like fun fact that you've known your husband since you were a young girl. So yeah. So tell us what it was like to grow up in Queens and the connection to your husband. And yeah, I mean, and I, you know, y'all, I don't remember I'm an East coast girl, so I'm a Jersey (laughs) girl, but you know, just, 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 just a, a ways down the freeway is Manhattan and New York and the boroughs and my my grandparents uh, and my parents were born. My parents were born in Brooklyn and my, that's where my grandparents lived. So I went across the Verrazano Bridge at least once a month in, during my whole youth <laughs> and to the theater. And yeah, New York was a, was very uh, central to my growing up. So um, what was it like to grow up there? Yeah, I love being a Queens girl, you know, so if anyone listening from Queens or any of the boroughs or New York, I love growing up in a diverse community and we soon moved into Long Island. So there, there may be some Long Island that comes out. Long Island, Long Island. Island. Yes, exactly. (laughs) That comes out. Um, But I would say overall, my parents were amazing. They created a really positive environment for, for me to thrive. I will say that in school, it was a little difficult for me to adjust because I was one of the only people of color in some of my classes and you know, I get teased because of the name and, and things like that. But I, I found that in my own way, I would kind of gravitate to people that were really outspoken and outgoing. And I would become somebody that was their right hand woman. And that's kind of my situation with Iman. Iman also in Queens and how we know each other. Our parents were neighbors and they found each other at a bus stop, you know, wearing a sari. <laughs> and it's like, wait, you know, you're wearing a sari, which is, you know, natural Bangladeshi garb. And that wasn't really found in the 70s. So they started to connect and find different ways to go shopping together for special spices. And they just created this instant connection. So I became really good friends with this family that were our neighbors, but it wasn't until we were 27 people were like, is it an arranged marriage? And did you fall in love? I'm like, nope, it was nothing like that. We, um, it was arranged by the universe. (laughs) Yes, it was arranged by the universe. And I'm going to take credit. I, I was the one who actually went for it at 27. I I just, you know what? I'm going to ask him out. I'm going to regret it if I don't ask out my best friend. Because that's who I wanted to marry. It was terrifying. But I did ask him out at first. And I am now celebrating 15 years this year. And one beautiful 12-year-old boy. That's amazing. If you could be, it's like a Bangladeshi rom-com. You know, <laughs> oh, ask I, out I, your... I call our <laughs> wedding my big fat Bangladeshi wedding. We had <laughs> people there. We had so many people upset because that couldn't come because they weren't on the top like 800 list of, of who was invited. They're like, we thought we were closer to you. I mean, we still have people that are upset that, you know, we come from that's really amazing. families and it's just, you know, it, it, that's I think it. I was <laughs> laughing when you said how many people. So I want you to know, she said 750 people at her wedding. Yes. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. Wow. And you described it to me earlier as 750 people and five days. And did you say 42 people in your wedding party? Yes. 42. We had uh, 22 bridesmaids and 20 groomsmen mix of family and friends. And is that normal? <laughs> it's normal in, in <laughs> South Asian communities. They're the, okay. that having that. That's what I, that's what I meant. I didn't get yes. to finish my sentence, but yes, yes, yes. yes. 
Wow. That is amazing. That's amazing to just, and what a celebration. I remember I got married when I was 23, which felt really young at the time. And it, we just sort of did the wedding because that's what you do. And I just remember feeling, and we had like, I don't know, 150 people, maybe 135 people. And I just remember thinking like, this is just like, I just want to spend the rest of my life with this guy. This is a lot of trouble to go through just to like, you know, make that happen. So I'm now hanging my head in shame. <laughs> no. well, I think in, in our culture, there's a poem by Khalil Gibran and my son's name is Gibran. We named him after the poet. And I love this poem about your children, which it talks about our children is not your children. It belongs to the whole of the community. And that really mm-hmm. is the perspective of Bengali culture, that we do everything through community and through family, uh, especially events like this. Although, you know, even a haircut would be like your first baby's haircut. It would be a hundred people gathered to watch <gasps> the haircut. It, so we celebrate everything when it comes to your wedding. You know, people are saving up almost their entire lifetime, especially if you have multiple kids and, you know, hosting multiple day events. This is something that that people really invest in. And I will say, I didn't understand all of it. It felt dramatic in a way when you think about all the pieces that are involved. But looking back to have so many people witness a sacred moment, I feel always held by people that witnessed that. And the people that didn't are like, can you have an anniversary party? We want to come to the next, you know, Bollywood. It's amazing that that anyone possibly could feel left out with (laughs) 750 people. That's amazing. So I love hearing how your mom and Aman's mom met at the bus stop because they're wearing their saris and they must've just been like so happy to see each other to be, you know, before, because you said that later on there was a really big Bangladeshi community where you grow up, but it sounds like it was, you know, like it kind of started with them. Yeah, they started it. (laughs) They started it in their homes and inviting people over and cooking meals. There was a lot of Bangladeshi bachelors who, you know, came over uh, and were working without family. And my mom was married at the time, but uh, would invite people over to mastermind and to sit and talk and help people adjust and cope. It was a big life change. That's amazing. I had such a different <laughs> experience in my like New Jersey suburbia, you know, white middle class, like kind of talk to our neighbors, but not really. And, uh, you know, that once a month trip to Brooklyn to see my grandparents. So it's such a beautiful and so different like I could just feel, like you said, you feel sort of held and surrounded by those people. And I definitely could feel the absence of that kind of strong community foundation. So yeah, I love that. So what was it like since there wasn't at first a strong Bangladeshi community, what was it like in school growing up being one of the few kids of color in your school and with the weird, as you said, would you say, call it the weird, the weird first name? Or- yeah. Weird first name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, it was tough. I will say that my younger years, I think it, in Queens, actually, I, I felt, I didn't realize that I had a different skin color for most, I, I felt accepted and I had friends and I was in ballet and did all the things that other kids did. It was, it was really when I started to enter middle school and high school, it continued where it became an everyday issue 
that something would be, there would be name calling, there would be just feeling like I did not belong. And that was a struggle on my self-esteem and not having my brother didn't go to the same schools as I. So it was the oh. first time I was going through and I had no mentor that could say here, here's what it's going to be like. And that's what I've really taken on. I have a lot of cousins since we have a big family and really being able to pass on how to navigate when you feel like you don't belong. Because what I realized is that it's not just a weird name and the color of my skin. A lot of people don't feel like they belong. And I think that, you know, that's one of the things I love talking about with Alan is we love working and talking with misfits, like the people who are just like a little (laughs) bit weird. You know, there's something that's just can't be explained in language, but you just have that connection with somebody. And I think I can really own that now that I, I have a weird name and, you know, there's different things about my culture and my personality that may not be understood easily, but I celebrate it and I can talk about it confidently. My eight-year-old self, though, would be ashamed. And the eight-year-old self would, on the weekends, dress up in a sari. But I remember once for class pictures, and this is a joke within the South Asian community, because many parents have done this, they send their child in in a sari, thinking this is dressed up. But when you're in fourth grade in Queens, and you're coming to school in an outfit, that you're going to get teased. It just stands out. And I was so desperate to fit in. I think that I, it really took a lot of my, you know, 20s to overcome some of the, the pieces that really embedded in my thoughts that I wasn't worth it. I didn't belong. I was ugly. Like all of these things, not desirable, like all these things were floating to this growing woman's mind. And it wasn't until later that I had tools and support to conquer them. When do you feel like you really sort of came into your own? Was it in business school? You know, was it in that, that 27 year old that finally decided to like make a move on her best (laughs) friend? Or when do you feel like you really came into your own? Yeah, I would say there's two moments that really stand out for me. And one of them is attending undergraduate school. I went to Bentley college in Boston, Waltham, Massachusetts, right outside of Boston. And I felt in that campus environment, there were so many opportunities to really develop myself as a professional and as a leader. And I felt like I was up to something there, that that all the things that I had concerns about, that you know, my name and my being a woman and being a person of color and my religion, the things that I thought were a constraint and what would keep me invisible, I often would be in a class and hidden in plain sight because I was too afraid to introduce myself and be teased again like I was in high school and be embarrassed. So I really designed a life where I didn't have to face criticism or judgment. At Bentley, I started to unpack some of that and introduce myself and and see that there was opportunities for me to be heard. I would say a couple of years after that, I took on a personal development course. And in that course, I really started to own who I was and saw that a lot of this was just my own muck in my mind, whatever you want to call it, limiting beliefs or the monkey, like that just kind of talks and puts you down. I had a say in what I was going to tell myself. I could either believe the person who first said, what kind of name is Afrin? That's a nasal spray. Or I could say, 
it's a name that's Persian and it means bravo and it can clear the stuff out of your head better than that nasal spray. And in the way I can own it and be confident and deliver it, I can completely flip the outcome of being seen and feeling like I belong. So you at 27 years old, you decided to make a move on your best friend. Bravo, by the way, super Thank courageous. You. Glad it went. I'm glad it went in favor for you. <laughs> and you were married in 2007 and then had your son in 2010. And shortly after is when your entrepreneurial career started. Tell us about that. That's right. I wanted to take a year off being a mom is something I dreamed about. And I really wanted to spend that first year and have really supportive husband and family. And I was able to do that. When I was looking to reenter working again, I felt this gut feeling that I wasn't doing the right thing. I remember monster. Do you remember monster.com? I was like, Google or it wasn't Google. Absolutely. hundred percent. I used to joke for it. Cause I, I left corporate in 1999 and I used to joke for at least the first five, maybe even longer if I'm truthful. I used to say I would have these monster.com moments. And those were the moments where I would, should I be doing this entrepreneur thing? Maybe I should just really look for a job. So I would call them monster.com moments. So absolutely. Perfect. This, <laughs> this is my monster.com moment. I okay. Monster.com looking for different positions. And I just felt this gnawing at me, this whisper, if you call it this call. And I had my son in my arms and I I couldn't do, I feel it right now. (laughs) I feel that moment right now where I, I just felt that this decision was not for me. It was an inherited like, oh, you know, now that you had the baby, it's been a year now, go back to work. That's what you do. I have a degree, go. And this voice was just encouraging me to follow my own pathway and create it. My parents both worked. My dad was a professor at St. John's University. He was a librarian there. My mom also professor scientist at SUNY Downstate. And my brother works at Google, like a lot of successful people around me. So thinking about starting my own business has always been on my mind, going to a business school. It's, it's always there. But I thought I needed to have an MBA, which I didn't have. I had an undergrad bachelor's. I thought I needed more money, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars to, to start up. I thought I needed to be older. And I realized everything from my life experiences, who's saying that? That's someone else saying that I can create my business. I have a say. And that day I created it. It really was the monster.com moment. I'm starting my business today and started talking about it with other people. I called my husband and told my family and they were really, really supportive. That's amazing. My husband, when I told him, so my, my story is at age 29, after being in corporate about eight years, because I started when I was an undergrad, I started working as a, a corporate intern at AT&T. And at 29, I got laid off for the third time in two years. And I told my husband after just like getting laid off like that same day that I was going to follow my dream to be an entrepreneur. And he said, what dream? 
because I literally had not thought about being an entrepreneur like for a second before like that day. It was like something that like, I don't know, I was struck by entrepreneurship. I just felt like, oh my gosh, I just can't. I just can't go working. I just can't go on working for someone else and like not being in charge of my life. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what the F I'm going to do for my, you know, big entrepreneur dreams, but I just can't go back. So I love that at least you had the seeds were planted and uh, you got that immediate support. I mean, my husband was very supportive, but first he had to be like, what are you talking about? And then he got on board. (laughs) But we definitely had the, what are you talking about moments after you did. Okay. (laughs) My first investment, you know, cause this was only, I'm going into the world of coaching and events and networking and, I, you know, went to an event and there was a $10,000 more offer and I, I called him and he was like, what are you doing? You know, like, the, how do you know this? Right. There's all those things in the beginning, there was support and he's still, I mean, he's now working in the company, right? So you can kind of see, we overcame that. What are you doing moment when I wanted to invest a pretty big amount of our income into working with somebody And we still have those moments. We still have the what are you doing moments. But I think anything can be resolved in communication, giving each other breathing room and, you know, giving each other space and then, you know, regrouping and and figuring out what is it that we're really up to individually and as a couple and as a business and being able to create from there. I love creating. I love being able to uh, just be able to see how we can help other people and that's why why we do what we do in the face of of all of it in the craziness. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you are such a dynamo. And I was going to say a little dynamo. How tall are you? I have this impression <laughs> you're little like me. Are you little? I'm five feet tall. Okay. I'm, I'm little-ish. I'm five three. So I got three inches on you, but. Oh, you I'm- got three inches on me. Yeah. So you still, I still feel like I want to call you a little dynamo. I don't know why. <laughs> but I'm, I'll um, take it. Yeah. All right. Cool. Because. I, I mean that I just, I could feel just like your commitment, enthusiasm, and kind of like, you definitely strike me as something like, once you make a decision, it's sort of like you're off the races. So you were telling me before we started the interview about how you decided to start your own business. You had this monster.com moment. You decided to start your business. And then you said, I'm going to get a client today. And you actually did. You got a client the same day. Yeah. And I thought it was a sign. I'm like, this is a sign from the universe that we're, we're in business. You know, how does that happen? I, I went to an acupuncture appointment. I have asthma I was laying on the table. Maybe my second appointment, don't know her very well. And at the end of the session, she started talking about her personal life and her daughter's getting married and was really, really stressed out about it. And I do weddings. I d- did my own wedding for 750 people and I've done many weddings prior to that. Did I have a certification? No. Did I have a website? No. Did I have a contract? No, but I can create who I am. And I said, I'm a, an event planner. And if you'd like to hire me and she, how much I told her the price very under, you know, looking back, like, <laughs> that, that was funny what I charged, but I wanted my first client and she hired me on the spot. And I came home and I felt, again, I was in business. And that happened from the monster moment to, you know, several hours later, I I had another moment that I started my own business. That's amazing. So we're going to talk about another kind of moment, which we call the GFR moment here on the Mm -hmm. show, which is, you know, often has the, 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 the vibe of sort of like the dark night of the soul 
type of journey. So where, what happened? Like, when did that moment happen? And tell yeah, us. Yeah. And I, I love that you ask these questions because sometimes when we look at a news feed on social media or we're scanning at pictures, we're seeing all the bright and shiny moments, the celebratory moments, but not the moments that are these kind of dark soul searching moments. Those are usually private and sometimes even sacred and not to be judged. I think this forum is beautiful to be able to share some of those stories. It was a dark and stormy night. The dark soul moment happened a little bit later, but for me, my moment was in October of 2012. And I was living in Long Island at the time. And we had been in business a little under a year. And was I had your husband ex- working with you right from the beginning or no? No, he was in corporate. Yeah. Okay. He was in corporate. Although he joined like maybe the month prior to this moment. Okay. I made an, you know, I, I was. That's a big going, deal. Yeah. It was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal for, for him to come into the business at that time. And I was now doing events for not only brides, but also for business, small business owners and entrepreneurs. And I had about 10 clients at the time. We decided to move out of the city, you know, what it costs in the city, you know, with the child and move into my parents' home in Long Island. And we took over the basement, turned it into an office. There was like washer dryer machine, made a curtain, you know, to make it look pretty and had side-by-side desks. And we would work out of the basement and we were getting 10 contracts, which was about 10 K a month, right. For, well, 10 K per contract, I'd say not per month. That, That happened later, but 10 K. So we were, we were feeling comfortable in the first kind of start of our business. And then in October, right around Halloween, we started getting notifications that there was a hurricane alert. Now, I grew up in Long Island, and I'm familiar with these notifications. And usually, we'd ignore them because there was this storm warning, then it would calm down, and maybe it was a little bit of rain. Or people who lived closer to Jones Beach, they would get impacted in Long Beach, but it never impacted us in the years that I lived there. So we also kind of brushed it off. Oh, the weather, they're they're just saying that. But it started to increase. The warnings started to get more frequent. And then we got calls. If you don't leave and there is a flood, we will not come rescue you. And when that happened and you have a one-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old at home, you don't take that for granted. Wow. And we had only a couple of hours. So, you know, I, we have our little hurricane box of, like, documents. My dad's a librarian. He catalogs everything. So <laughs> that, and we packed, you know, some clothes, thinking we're going to be gone for a couple of days, maybe. My parents went to family friend's house, and my husband and I, my son, went to a family friend's house. And we stayed there for thinking for a couple of days, it turned out that we were displaced for over four months. Oh my God. It was unsafe to return to the home. It got flooded over six feet. (gasps) Our office that was in the basement and all of the items that we moved from the city into our apartment in storage, because they have a huge basement is completely ruined. My, my sorry, my wedding, sorry, completely (gasps) washed up my yearbook and, you know, music, our books that we collect completely underwater. 
Now, thankfully, everyone four was months. Four oh months. Oh my god! The first month was we couldn't go back in because there was no electricity. It was deemed unsafe. There was looting happening. They sent in the guards to protect that area. It was intense, and nothing like any of us have experienced. And this is a lot of Long Island. When we wanted to work during that time, there was no internet at the home that we were staying at because internet was out. There was gas shortages. We were going to the library to sit on the floor to email a client and send proposals. And it, it was just, it was really challenging during this time. And what started to unfold is most of our clients were in New York and they all canceled their contracts. No one was doing events during post Sandy. Wow. And that stopped us dead in our tracks. We were able to get by the first month second month, third month, and then we started having to use our credit card to pay for things and started to see the cash flow depleting. And I remember this moment, this was that that dark soul moment where I remember laying in my friend's bedroom and my husband was next to me and we were really stressed out about what we were going to do forward. Was this the moment that our business was going to close down? I am seeing all these other shops that are local in our neighborhood that are closing down. And as you know, natural disasters can wipe out a lot of businesses. And I thought, you know, we're just going to be swept up into that statistic that we're one of the people that, you know, I think it's 60% of businesses can go out of business after a natural disaster and started having that tough conversation. Do we need to let go of the business and close up. Do I need to get a job? How are we going to get through this? Because I couldn't see ourselves out of it. How are we going to pitch doing events when no one is leaving their homes? And there was another moment that we had where we drew a line in the sand and we recommitted to the business the way that we commit to each other, you know, for better or for worse sickness and health. We have, our company name is Red Elephant. We have an elephant to take care of and an elephant to nurture. And maybe it doesn't look like the way that we built it in the last year, but we have resources and we have ways in which we can create and pivot and innovate something that will make a difference for people. And it was really that night when we drew a light, we're like, all right, we're committed to this. It may suck for a little bit. It may be that we have to kind of change our lifestyle and ask for more help, but we're committed to making sure Red Elephant is standing. And I'm proud to say last year, we celebrated 10 years of being in business. 10 years ago was Hurricane Sandy too. So it's to be able to, to overcome that moment where I really thought we were going to have to shut down. What I am left with from that lesson is, again, I had a say in how it was going to go. I could either be swept up in what it, how it goes for people, or I can take a stand. And maybe, you know, you don't have a Hurricane Sandy moment, but there may be a moment where people have a time where you feel stopped dead in your tracks. You're not sure you hit a wall. You're not sure where you're going to go. And I love sharing the story to to really create proof that you can flip it. You can cause and declare because you have a say in how it goes. 
like I could feel the stress in my body thinking about <laughs> you all in your friend's house. It's now four months. You have a one-year-old and a business with no clients. And I just, ah, oh, the terror of, I mean, you weren't on the street, right? We always think about, we're like, we're going right. to be on the street, you know, yeah. and you weren't on the street. You had a house over a roof over your head. It's just so courageous to just say, no, like we're no, not today, <laughs> not today. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So from there, let's see, where do we want to go? At what point in your business after that, did you feel like you know, you were able to exhale and feel like you made it. I think I'm still waiting for that moment. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> waiting to exhale, like, what is that like? But I'll say, so you said something interesting when you said waiting to exhale, but then you said the moment where you feel you made it. And I did have a moment like that. And it, there was, it was a blessing and a curse. So I'll share that story with you. Okay. One of my bucket list items, you know, I always like, looking ahead of who I want to work with and what's my next goal and what's my next mountain that I'm going to climb. And someone that I really wanted to work with was Deepak Chopra. And he's somebody, you know, he's South Asian and watching him on Oprah and learning about spirituality was something that really resonated with me. I don't consider myself extremely religious, but I consider myself very spiritual. And a lot of his approach to humanity and ego really connected with me. And that was a dream. I had written down in my journal, I would love to work with Deepak Chopra among some other people. And I had that moment. Wow. I was able to work with him. I had somebody that knew of me, again, not, not that well, but knew of me, was at an event where my team, I wasn't even there. My team was producing an event in Long Island and he was blown away by the event production and went to the team and said, I want to know more about this event production company, put that person in touch with Iman. And they started talking and said, we have an opportunity to partner with Deepak Chopra at ABC home. And they have an in-house event producer, but there's something in my gut that is saying, you are the producer. Are you willing to come and meet Deepak for him to see what I see? And we said, yes. And we went and we were able, we produced two of his events at ABC home and it was a bucket list moment. And he was in front of the room in the middle of the event. He had a standing ovation, but he stopped and said, this accomplishment is not all mine. It is a freen as well. Please give her a hand. And he, he extended wow. it to me because there was some barriers he had of doing an offer from the stage. And I coached him through that. There was a wow. moment he had that I wouldn't say it's, it's a different type of monster moment, not monster.com, but, but somebody was just not nice. And you probably have experienced that sometimes, you know, when, when you go to put yourself out there and be vulnerable, you're open for criticism and judgment. And someone judged him for doing an offer in the seventies. And after that, he never did his own offer. Wow. He always worked with other people to do an offer. And I was like, no, like, this is your creation. He asked me to do it. He's like, I'll go to the bathroom (laughs) and can you do the offer? And that's not what you invested in me. I'm here to guide you so that you can do this anywhere you go. He made the offer. He got a standing ovation. It was beautiful for him to source that. You don't see many people 
source who's doing it behind the scenes. And I had this moment where I felt like Deepak Chopra (laughs) acknowledged me and I felt like I made it. That's a good manifesting, my dear. Thank you. Well, what happened right after though, I was saying it's a blessing and a curse. I I kind of put my feet up and went on (laughs) go for a bit. I was like, that's it. You know, there's there, I I hit my bucket list. I'm not sure, you know, I hit a lot. I I like meeting milestones. I work with Deepak. I did six figures, went on to (laughs) half a million, crossed seven figures. Like where else is there to go? I, I didn't create that next mountain for me to climb until several months after. So I, I do think that Deepak Chopra kind of messed with my, you know, I'm blaming him in joke, but it, it was yeah, like, it's totally his fault. <laughs> yeah, it's totally his fault, right? Why not blame him? But it, I, I just got comfortable. I got comfortable after that and that had an impact. So I've, I've learned from, from them that it's not about chasing these moments, but really creating the impact that I want to make. And that changes every day and every year and every week. What kind of difference do I want to make for people? At first it was weddings and then it was coaching. And now it's evolving to really creating inspiring communities that are inclusive of people who are up to a big game. And Alan gave me this actually, he's like a friend, you know what I think you are? I think you are a whisperer for mystics, misfits, and the misunderstood. When you get in their ear, they have a sense of empowerment and they're able to move forward in a way that I haven't seen. And I think that's who your, what your gift is here. And I resonate with that is like, if there's something weird about your vision or your idea or your business, and you can't put it on a sales page, cause it's hard to explain Like I'm your girl. I know how to create <laughs> around that. I know how to create a following and fans and community. And I, I love exploring the weirdness of people and I can get it. Cause I, my parents and my, I would say my parents do, but my, a lot of my family still don't know what I do. They'll see a microphone and they think I sing, which I do not sing, but they'll see me at the <laughs> So it's weird to do some of the work that we do. It's not something that is visible to people, but if you're in it and you get it, like you get it, Lisa, you get it and you pull that out for people to hear that it's possible. And I'm so grateful that you do the work that you do. I was looking at your commandments and I wish I had that when I was going through the Hurricane Sandy moment. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I wish I had yeah. <laughs> 20 years ago. <laughs> 20 years ago, right, to guide us. But I, I really learned, you know, number seven is the one that I, I just jumped out at. I mean, a lot of them did. I think number four was like, trust that your struggle is part of your mission. And I think that if I knew that then, I would have been maybe more bold. Um, I don't have regrets, but I was just like, okay, this is part. Now, we're in the pandemic. I'm able to embrace that. You know, this, the struggle is part of my mission. Like, let me, let me go through this so I can uh, have compassion for others that are going through it and maybe teach or mastermind or help and guide other people along the way as I'm going through it myself. But I also love number seven, which is trust your gut and trust yourself. You know, if, if you can, among the noise and the naysayers and the haters and the people that doubt you, and your vision and your ideas, if you can stand in the face of that and take action consistently year after year, then you are a force. You are a force. And that's one of the commandments that I live by. Me too. (laughs) I always, I I think I, at some point always say, well, that one's my favorite, but that, that one is a favorite for sure. I just live by my intuition and I, yet I keep 
seeking even deeper, deeper trust. And, you know, of course, the pandemic has pushed me, invited me to take a deeper cut in many areas of my life, including trusting my gut. So I totally relate to that one as well. So you recently have gone through sort of an, a, another sort of opportunity to choose again. Can you tell us about that as we kind of finish up here? I want to make sure, because I love when my guests share a story of their dark night, you know, they're usually several years, you know, out from it. And then lately, I feel like many of our interviews have been like, well, and here's sort of like the latest, (laughs) you know, here's sort of the latest um, that I'm walking through. And I think so many people are being invited also to walk through choosing again and being invited to re-examine things. And so I always like to guess an opportunity to share anything kind of recent that you feel like you've learned about yourself or being invited to explore. Sure. Thank you for for that. Being somebody that does events and uh, our business runs on events, that's that's primary where we generate our revenue. And after March 2020, when all events got shut down for the year, we were able to pivot and sustain for the year, but it really impacted our sales and our marketing. Had to close down all of our conferences and again, other people hiring us and they had to close down and with no date in sight. Or we would create one and then it would be just kidding, still can't yeah. still can't go forward. And so we were we were hustling and, and reinventing and and going through that. And a year and a half into it, it's you know starting to take a toll on you. And then last August, the last week of August, also really close to my birthday. My birthday is September 1st. And I got a call on August, about August 24th, just this last year. And my mom said, your dad has to go to the hospital. Don't worry. I'm going to call you from the hospital and give you updates. I got a phone call a couple hours later. Afreen, I think you should come home. They're saying he's not going to make it. Oh my gosh. My heart sank. And I right away went into the fight or flight mode and told my husband. And I got on a flight just with my handbag. And I was in the hospital room next to my father that evening despite barriers of COVID and not being able to come into yeah. the room. I'm like, no, like I, I'm not, I was a dynamo when I got to the front. I'm like, yes, you were saying my father's not going to make it. I'm going to be in that room. And he passed five days later. Oh I'm grateful God. that I had that time with him by him, his side. And I was able to assist with his transition, which I was completely terrified of. Wow. It ended up being really beautiful because I leaned into, I trusted myself to be there for him. He didn't need to be my father anymore. Mm-hmm. I was going to assist him. I called on my mystics and my, my Alan would be proud of me. He's like, darling, you got this. <laughs> on the other side of it, going through the grieving process after we buried my father and our family is grieving. It took some time out of the business and being able to re-enter a business after you've gone through something like yes. that is challenging. And you start to question everything. And I was questioning, am I, is this really what I want to give my life for? You know, I'm examining my father's life. My father had a brilliant life. He was a professor. He was a community leader. He was an author. And I 
wanted to follow in his footsteps and be able to create something that represented the name. You know, Huck is his last name. It means truth. And I would have a lot of these dark soul moments by myself. One of the last things my father said to me, it was several months ago. It was almost like he knew it would be the last thing that he said to me. He said, Afreen, be brave. So in those moments where I started to question, should I continue the business? Should I continue selling and marketing in the face of a pandemic? I hear my father's whisper, Afreen, be brave. And I'm taking action inside of that. And I find comfort in knowing that I can create what's next for me. I may not know, even with all my experience, I still have moments of feeling uncertain, but I'm empowered to take the next steps. Good for you. Seriously. Yeah. I can't imagine. And I've seen multiple, you know, many, many clients are over the years go through the loss of a parent. And every time it seems to be an invitation to assess on some level, whether personally or professionally, it's one of those choice points. So I really applaud you for listening to his words and, you know, and really inquiring, like, you know, what's next for you all. So tell us what you do know of what you feel is Red Elephant's future. I know you're going to be adding uh, community as a key aspect of what you're doing, which must be amazing because you're, you know, you help these entrepreneurs do their events and, you know, offer their community, right. As part of, you know, offer people an opportunity to be in their community. And it sounds like you're really leaning into that as something that you're going to be standing for in the, the next phase. Absolutely. I think everything you need is inside of community. This podcast, your invitation for me to share my story energizes me to continue in the face of the pandemic and all the circumstances that I'm facing. And I want to create a community environment for people to learn how they can be a force in the marketplace, like a red elephant. If you've ever seen an elephant that is red, you would remember it. And we are looking for people that are up to big games, that want to stand out, that is creating things that can't be ignored. And I think how we do that is inside of community. I love teaching about events and speaking and converting from the stage. That's not the only way to make an impact. That is how I ran my business the last 10 years. I would say this is the best way to make an impact. But there's podcasts and there's writing books and there's paving your own pathway, which you're genius at helping people create launches. I seen you with the last client with Joan in reinventing and inventing something completely that hasn't been done before. Pioneering something right now is so important, but you can't do it alone. We know that. So Red Elephant is going to be a community learning environment where you can learn in live workshops, or classes on topics that are going to help you close the gap so that you can make impact and income and be a force in the marketplace. Awesome. I love it. I can't wait to see what you do next, girl. That's yeah. I'm just like, yeah, I'm like leaning in to see what you do next. 
it's whatever it is. It's for sure going to have finesse <laughs> and it's gonna, and, and I just, I love how the name of your company just, it's like a talisman for you or like, a, I don't know. It just like, it seems to be such a, like the essence for you of mm-hmm. what you do and, and it could have many forms. So I'm looking forward to seeing what's next for you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here on the GFR show. I loved getting to know you and I'm glad I could not call you my friend because all of my guests are now my friends. So (laughs) I love it. I love that we have the monster moment. We have the New York Jersey moments uh, up to game changing transformation and making a difference for people. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You are so welcome. What kind of elephant are you? (laughs) The free gift that Afreen has for our audience is her impact archetype quiz. It's what they call, what kind of elephant are you? It's super fun and also super informative. So I hope you will grab that opportunity. Uh, The link is in our show notes for you to take her quiz. And obviously you'll be connected with Afreen. And if you would like to listen to the episode that we talk about where our mutual friend, Alan Davidson recorded an episode shortly before he passed away, it's called from self-loathing to fabulous gay mystic. And he was such a delight. It's episode 69. I find that a little funny. So you can go check that one out if you're curious. And if you are in our GFR squad, I can't wait to see you on our next community call. We do that every month. And speaking of community, Afreen's bonus training is what makes a community a movement. And she has a free infographic that she shares that covers, I think it's eight different aspects of what makes a community of movement. It's really smart and really helpful. And I loved seeing all the different aspects that are in the GFR squad. It's really fascinating to see kind of what I do, (laughs) what it has become organically and how it sort of ticks all the boxes. So if you have not joined the GFR squad yet and want to hang out with us each month, focusing on one of the GFR commandments, please go to gfr.life forward slash squad. Do it now. It's only $20 a month. You can cancel anytime. So you can just come for one month, (laughs) check it out. And I would just love to meet you. It's, it is really where the community is forming around this show. It's over two years now running. We've gone through the 12 G of our commandments (laughs) more than twice. And it is just a, it's just a great wake up call each month for us where we're getting in our own way. All right, make sure you subscribe to the show and I will see you next time.